Hello, welcome, and would you look at this mess? I'm your host, Kate, and the purpose of this podcast is to trace, explore, and celebrate the unconventionality that lives within all of us. Hey, hi, welcome back. Come on in. I am really excited for this episode. I had mentioned at the end of my previous episode that I was going to have a guest today, and I do. So this interview was recorded previously, and I'm going to drop it in in just a minute, but I'm going to give you a little bit of background and context so that you know where we are when we get there. Um, So this interview is with my colleague and friend, Jordan Jameson. He is a monitor or otherwise known as a field liaison representative, FLR for short. Um, He represents the Mississippi of the Credit First Nation, and I asked him to come on so that we could give some background and context about what FLRs do, where the role comes from, that kind of stuff, and then just talk a little bit more about what he is working on um, as his side projects because he's doing a lot and they're great projects going. So you will probably notice that there's going to be a little bit of a choppiness because one of the questions that I had asked Jordan, we actually addressed at the end of our interview. So I'm just cutting and pasting that and putting it in at the beginning because it does offer some uh, further context for you before we get into more of the the in-depth questions. So yeah, it's going to sound like a little funny, I think, but that's okay. We're going to get through it. (laughs) Anyway... Um, thank you for joining me, and here is my interview with Jordan Jameson. Annie, Jordan. <laughs> Annie, how are you? I'm doing well. Nishna. Nishna, yes. <laughs> I'm learning, I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, you are Jordan Jameson. You are a FLR, Field uh, Liaison Representative or Monitor. Um, and so we work together. We've, we've been working together on a project until just a few days ago. Right. And, um, so you work alongside us and as the archeologists. Um, and so I kind of just wanted to, to see if you were able to explain in a bit of detail, what, um, where the FLR positions came from, do you consult that kind of stuff and, and sort of take us from there? Yeah. So actually earlier this year, the, Undrip just got, uh, I don't even know what, what do they call it, raised, ascended, ascended, oh, ascended, uh, yeah, to like Canadian law. So it's in its like final, final, I don't know, there's probably another couple steps, but yeah. Anyways, yeah. Article 11 kind of really talks about um, archaeology, and, and it's just kind of, you know, that they have the right to practice and revitalize their cultural traditions. Um, and that's maintaining, protecting and developing the past, present and the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, you know, manifestations of the, of cultures, that's archeology, span that's historical, um, that's artifacts, ceremonies, um, you know, and, and all that performing arts and stuff. And that the states have to make, you know, redress through effective mechanisms uh, to deal with all that. And TRC, along the same lines, fills that. And they, they want Canada to kind of accept UNDRIP as the 
as a law. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of feeds into what duty to consult kind of does as well. So all those documents together um, kind of give that, that, that balance and in, in power to first nations to use, but I don't know. Yeah. 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 No, that makes sense. Um, so yeah, because it didn't just like duty to consult didn't just, you know, come out of nowhere, right? Right. Like it didn't just suddenly show up one day. This is something that's built from different types of reports and documentations at different levels, right? Because UNDRIP is the UN and, um, and TRC is something that came out of a legal case. Um, so those things together have sort of patchworked into creating what the duty to consult looks like, which in itself is continuously evolving too, right? right. Um, because I think if I'm correct, I think it used to just be duty to consult and then it turned into duty to consult and accommodate. And like there have been some iterations over time where we're like realizing that it just hasn't gone far enough in some ways. Um, is that, that's, so that's my, my understanding of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how much like background information needed to be yeah. included. But. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> no, that, that helps. I, it is good. Um, I try to explain these things too, but there is so much to it There is, yeah. that it's impossible to break it down in enough points to be like, this is what it is. So <laughs> It's a it's a huge thing that's come out of a lot of different uh, different basically investigations and reports and different uh, undertakings of trying to understand what happened historically and how to correct it for present and future, um, you know, for to make it fair and and less oppressive to <laughs> different people. <laughs> yeah. Inclusive. <laughs> Inclusive. <laughs> For us personally, I guess like each First Nation's kind of different in that aspect on how how they're involved or or uh, with archaeology. So for us, it kind of began um, right along when the standards and guidelines kind of start first coming in place. Um, there were the new ones, the like 2011. And then we had a few projects and, and really small scale. Um, number of people in, in that time stretch, we had like two or three years um, where we just had like a handful of people. And then it just started to grow from there as, as more development start taking place and more engagement in archaeology um, started to happen. We just needed more people. Uh, so then they developed the, a department to, to deal with that type of accommodating for that duty to consult. So when a proponent wants to um, or when a proponent has to, I guess, should say, uh, consult with First Nations, there's different, um, the accommodations part is having uh, representatives from the nation be a part of that project as, it, as it's undergoing. And one of the strongest um, ways we're involved is being in there, uh, involved in the archaeology excavations as they're happening. Um, so around, I think, I think it was 2016, 2015, um, the Department of Consultation and Accommodation was was formed to kind of handle and, and deal with all these incoming requests. And we, we do more um, primarily focused on 
on the archaeology part, but they, you know, there's a lot of in-office things as well. Um, so a part of that, we're monitors for uh, archaeology. Um, but for us specifically, we, we call ourselves field, field liaison representatives. That's yeah. um, just like a, a personal um, term for the nation that we use. Um, and then for myself, I'm one of the lead field liaison representatives. Um, and then I'm more employed in larger scale sites that have a lot of moving parts or the sites are more complex. Um, just to kind of bring everything together, bring all that information and, and do a lot of training for new FLRs coming in the field. Um, so that's kind of the role that I'm in now is uh, training and doing a lot of the outreach with new FLRs that we're bringing in and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, essentially the, the role was born out of the fact that engagement and consultation became a requirement within development uh, in general and specifically within archaeology. This has become a pretty important aspect of what we do because what a lot of what we deal with is Indigenous territory and Indigenous culture and property. So that's that's essentially why that started, right? Right. Um, and, and this is one one aspect of that duty to consult is, is being involved in archaeology. Um, just because we're involved in a, a project that does archaeology, we're not... Um, that's only like the one facet of that duty yeah. to consult. So there's, there's all these different layers of how they have to engage with First Nations or what type of requirements are, are being dealt with. Um, but so, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It was, so then, really yeah. So then, like you said, the archaeology is, is one facet of the myriad ways that uh, First Nations are con consulted and included in ongoing work. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And so um I recall that you were a field technician prior to being a monitor. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did um, a few years with uh, as a field technician under Archaeological Research Associates. Um, and that's kind of where I got started in, in archaeology. I didn't know a whole lot about it at the time or kind of knew the impacts of how much archaeology um, was involved in my life before that. Um, so I kind of just took it as a job, um, a summer job, and, the, and then kind of fell in love with it from there. Um, and then when we had more positions open up to work for the nation, I, I ended up switching over. Yeah, so that was the primary impetus to do that was just because there was availability there. Um, yeah. 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 Yeah, well, that's yeah. good. Yeah, there was a lot of, like, personal... Um, Choices, I guess, like I, I could have switched over a little bit earlier, but some of the sites that we were excavating were just, you know, they were stuff that I hadn't seen before and, and interesting and exciting. So right. I stuck around just to kind of be with those sites and learn a bit more of hands-on experience. Yeah. And do you find that having been on the other side of this role, right, being a field technician, it's helped you to navigate the FLR position as, like as you were entering into that? Uh, it was definitely easier to um, see where they're coming from. So like a, a new monitor or a new FLR coming in doesn't really have that that full scope of, of what we're kind of doing. 
And for us, we only do like a, a one to two week training course um, before we send FLRs to kind of like job shadow and stuff like that. Um, and you can't really like cram, you know, uh, all these years of, of knowledge and stuff like that in two years as hard as we try. So it, it, it takes a couple of years to even get a grasp on the basics. Uh, you know, I mean, for me, I've been doing this for nine years now and, you know, I'm still learning yeah. a ton of stuff every day. Yeah, for sure. But. Ditto. Same number of years, always <laughs> continuously yeah. learning. That's one of the beauties of the job though, is that that you're always experiencing new things. You get curveballs thrown at you. You learn something new every time you show up. So it's always kind of exciting, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so the other thing that I'm I'm kind of curious about too is is uh, you know as as an archaeologist, I hear stories about negative experiences for FLRs in the field. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to work for a company that I don't think there's been really all that much negative stuff going on internally, but I hear about it externally. And so I'm just curious if you can speak a little bit on like what that experience is or, or if you've had those experiences, et cetera. Yeah, uh, I think, um, you know, in the early years of, of being involved, a lot of people didn't understand why we were there. Um and like I said, for each person, it's a growing thing. And um, even for us, it was kind of getting a handle on um, and knowing why we are there our, ourselves. So it was that going through that learning process of getting comfortable enough to um, know that we, we have a right to be a part of the projects and be a part of these cultural resource that's getting extracted. Um, yeah. That's what it kind of it boils down to of, the purpose of they, the the reason that why we're there is is to um, I guess looking at CRM as a as CRM a cultural resource management and the fact that there's um, there's supposed to be a shared resource um, with First Nations people and it's supposed to be a 50-50 agreement sort of like how the treaties are supposed to be um, laid out so that that kind of way of looking at it is supposed to mimic in a lot of different aspects. Um, but yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, I get the sense that some people are still not totally clear on FLR, you know, presence and roles. And, um, you know, I, I know that you and I have heard of, of somewhat recently, some things coming up where people are still <clears throat> sort of putting archeology span on a pedestal and kind of placing it above the, the monitor um, role. And uh, so I find that to be interesting too, in that, you know, there, do you feel like it's shifting? Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> it's, uh, sorry. <clears throat> it's um, like, so that earlier years of, of just kind of like understanding why we're there and then moving along with that, um, as the years of like being working with field technicians and uh, the more time we spend showing of how kind of much we are invested in the work that's being done, we, we bring a lot of like outside grander look at the work that's being done. Um, so not focusing on that one site or those cutoff counts or, you know, putting, I guess, some meaning and, and thought thought behind 
the motions that we that we go through in the field. Um, you know, a lot of the times people just kind of get in that we got to get these this work done. Um, it's just all about numbers. It's about getting productivity out, and we a lot of people lose focus on on what the the importance of the work or or what it means or how it can affect um, a nation. Um, so being involved now for um, over a decade with First Nations uh, in Southern Ontario, starting to build these relationships with people from the ground. Um, so now seeing all these field technicians become field directors and knowing that it's just second nature to engage with First Nations and to have their input and stuff like that, we're starting to see that that turnaround for the most part. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's always, there's always going to be um, personalities that don't mend together well. Uh, and, and, but that, so. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I get that sense too, that, that overall people are really starting to understand. And I, I agree completely with the, with the idea that a monitor um, can be really great for balancing out that, um, the sort of business mindedness and the productivity mindedness um, and and the bottom line with more of the reality of what is actually going on, um, what impacts it's having and, and the people that are present, right. People who are present now, how they feel about these things um, versus just again, like kind of separating yourself out from the data essentially, right. Like depersonalizing it. Um, which gives it that that more human aspect, which is I think it's really great because we are you know we're working with with stuff from people who have existed before, so you know that you can add that sort of that um, idea of them being human and having um, a legacy, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was kind of like one of the one of the the I don't know if I'm necessarily say funny things, but just having like going out into the field and having, you know, people that spend four years of, of education and, or more um, learning about archeology span and, you know, maybe even looking at Ontario archeology span specifically and, and not even sitting down to meet or engage with first nations people or before they're on site. So just, you know, walking onto site and then they have to deal with first nations um, representatives, uh, and so a lot of people don't really know how to ask questions or, or just kind of interact with, with, with that, or just looking at artifacts themselves on how we're viewing these artifacts. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I totally get what you're saying. And that's a whole other side of it too. And again, where there is sometimes still a disconnect between archaeology as a profession and archaeology and, and practice and stuff, because, uh, and especially with CRM, because a lot of people come out of an undergraduate degree with an academic sense of archaeology, and then they apply it to the CRM stuff. And it's not actually, there's not a whole lot of crossover there. And so, and you know, so you find this in how people are excavating, you know, I'm sure you've, you've experienced people show up who have four years of archaeology education. They work for about a week and then they go, yeah, I can't hack it with this because it's like super hard work and that is yeah. not academic. And then, yes, of course, then there's always the aspect that there is not necessarily a lot of uh, attention in the education to um, directed towards you're you're going to be interacting and engaging First Nations or Indigenous folks 
um, and how to do that, how to sort of navigate that space. And so then there can be a little bit of floundering and <laughs> um, people misstepping, right? Which I, I think that's okay. I mean, that's my opinion if that, that missteps are okay, but it's this, it's an idea that like, you're, you're going to learn something or you're, you know, you're open-minded about things when you come into it with the sense that you already know everything. And then that's kind of, I find when people have issues. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's how you feel. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, like for me personally, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty open to like questions in, in the field and usually try to make it as, as awkward as possible at the beginning, just so it's people kind of enter that role more comfortably. And then they kind of know what, what I, what I expect on a site or what I expect from them or what they expect from me. And then. You'll have to pardon the interruption here. Jordan had a storm interfere with his connections, so we had to drop our call and then start up again. So that's what's coming up next. Okay. Um, yeah, anyways. We'll okay, no on. worries. <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't know. I guess, do you, like, do you think that there is um, a, I don't know how to word this, like, uh, a deficit too with people understanding indigenous culture, generally speaking as Canadians, like, does this seem to be a bit of an issue? Like, if I, I mean, I think that's, <laughs> yeah, that's like the root of the, the, the problem is getting that education into um, all aspects of uh, learning, you know, from, grade school down to, to, to high school and then university, especially when you're going to be dealing with first nations on a first hand for your career path. Uh, yeah. But. Yeah. I, I just, I sort of get this sense that, that sometimes um, there is that element of, of just fundamentally not understanding indigenous culture or issues and, you know, uh, an element of racism there as well, where people just don't really understand and so when you don't have any background understanding that kind of stuff from a basic level, then it might be sometimes more difficult to sort of bring them into understanding in the field, right? When they're already supposed to be uh, effectively communicating with, about this stuff. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, that's something like, okay. So in my, so like I do a lot of engagement um, session talks and stuff like that uh, and outreach. And a part of that, I, I kind of outline that that type of issue is, is, you know, working with archeologists in the field. A lot of times we'll, we'll, we'll ask for different things to be done or something that's beyond what their scope of work is. And, it's not necessarily that we think that's, or for me personally, it's not that I find that thing particularly interesting or, or um, different or what I want them to do. It's building that relationship of um, showing uh, a care. So they see that repetitive wanting to know more information or wanting to learn more information. And then that kind of like opens people's uh, perception on, on 
working with First Nations, I guess, or working with Indigenous people yeah. in, in the field. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, because I think some people might think that you're just there to be like a quote ball buster, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, like that yeah. might be the sense that they get. And so people may be nervous or something because they think that you're just there to criticize them, right? That, that, that's and so this is maybe again that this uh, lack of understanding of what an FLR role is or like why you're there or why it's important because I can say from my experience you know I have a little bit of background with standards and guidelines with so duty consultant stuff from my education but nobody ever really sits us down and says here's what it is and what you can expect and all of that right so so yeah and all that stuff's like it's it, like they're not there to like give you step-by-step playbooks it's just saying do this yeah do the right thing you know for the most part yeah and they leave the individual up to decide what that is or how that looks um and that's how it plays out in the field you know it's about that personal relationship that you have with the the archaeologist or or the indigenous communities out there on how well it can go or how well it doesn't go Um, yeah well and and there is the the element of what as well of of the fact that a lot of bigger firms especially are looking for productivity and so again there's that balance of being productive and also doing the right thing and being respectful of what it is that you're doing and so that's I find anyway one of the areas where FLRs are are again there to sort of balance things out a little bit and to give you that perspective of you know you want to do this right um, rather than just yeah. getting it out of the way because that's how you get it through quit more quickly and that's how you get to your bottom line right yeah for sure yeah. So the other thing is that you know you have a few other projects going on that are like outside of of your role as an FLR but inside more or less of the professional you know pursuits of archaeology (laughs) (laughs) yeah yep uh so I try to make um you know I guess the thing I'm learning about life is how things are a lot more connected than than I look at them. Um, so again, another thing I, I kind of touch on in, and when I train new people is um, looking at like when I got into, before I got into archeology, span I was going to be uh, going to school for culinary. And that was my passion. Um, you know, I was doing uh, uh, school and, and working part-time afterwards and just spending like 70, 80 hours um, a week working. So I just got burnt out of that. And I decided, oh, I'll give archaeology a try. There was a bunch of jobs, took the, took the training. Uh, so I did that for a summer and I loved it. Um, but a part of that training, we attended the historical gathering um, that we have at the First Nations. And it was just like all these different scholars and, and, and knowledge people in the community um, just kind of sharing our history. Cause you know, we're doing that too. We're trying to relearn all this stuff and and this path of um bringing the culture back into the community it's all kind of like tied together uh so one of those one of those um 
things is we got to pull the on our flag there's a there's a pipe uh underneath the eagle mm-hmm. and the three feathers um so that was one of the pipes given to uh reverend peter jones i think yeah i know names and dates <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah so anyways we, so we got to pull this pipe out of the museum and we did a sunrise ceremony with it and that just blew my mind to just to be able to like you know first use this thing that hasn't been used in in a hundred years and you know using it or maybe maybe the same way they used it uh it didn't work it would end up being like cracked in the shaft yeah. so like it, you know, yeah <laughs> but anyway so yeah yeah so we got to use that and then so finished that training um I started going down like a history kind of rabbit hole and then jumped into archaeology for that summer and, and you know I fell in love with it did it for a few more years there and then and then kind of switched that position over and then I started doing all this engagement stuff of uh duty to consult and, and learning about that and you know I'm still learning about how it's kind of affected um like my life personally but you know being even before that being younger doing you know I was quite the uh I guess like mm-hmm. activist you know, doing a lot of marches, protests, rallies, and, and and a lot of those things kind of stemmed from that lack of consultation yeah. with, with First Nations, you know, pipelines or or developments going up. Uh, you know, so we kind of, and I never seen that, the, the, the reason why we did it. And, and a lot of that consultation was not, was about going through archaeological sites and, and stuff like that. And, and seeing that after and, and kind of how, much of a role it's played in, 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 in my early years of life. Um, so, you know, fast forward now, uh, one of the projects I'm doing is going to be uh, taking food and archaeology and kind of like trying to mesh them together and do um, outreach. And, you know, just like basic uh, for, you know, everyday Canadians just to try to get that basic understanding, you know, and then I get to go back and, and go back to using my, my, my culinary passion um, and, and going through um, historical foods or, or, or uh, important different uh, times for celebrations or fall harvest and, and and stuff like that so this this first one that i'll be releasing hopefully this weekend we gotta finish it later (laughs) um so i'm looking at the the berry the berry moon um specifically the heart berry moon and then kind of how it leads into all the other berries for the season and spending that you know that three months out of the year picking um harvesting uh manicuring and, and cultivating all these different types of berries throughout the season. And then and you're gonna preserve them, you're gonna use them. And that's gonna be infused in, you know, every dish that you're gonna have that for that three months, you know, you're probably gonna have some type of berry, you're gonna have a dessert or you're gonna have a, a meal that's gonna bring you back to life. And, and when we're doing archeology span in the field, you, you know, we've, we'll, we'll, we can find a midden that has strawberry seeds in there. And, and, you know, it's like, oh, that's cool. There's a couple strawberry seeds, but like how much time and effort went into, um, 
you know, making that, making that meal or giving that insight of kind of what they were doing in that life for that time period. So that's always fascinating to me, um, learning more about that. And yeah. And, and, and drawing stuff. those connections from here to there. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is part of the OAS outreach that you're doing, correct? That's yeah. 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 So I, I sit on as a, I don't even know what the title is. Um, I think it's just like an OAS outreach right. committee. Um, so I just joined that this, this past spring. Uh, so hopefully I can get a little more active in the community um, outside mm-hmm. of my community. Uh, so in the archeological yeah. community uh, and, I, and I'm doing the same thing for, um, for our first nations. I want to. Uh, so I figured it was just a good time to like echo a lot of the, um, yeah. Same things. Uh, so, you know, bringing the awareness in, in, in our own community and then going out and, and, and doing the same thing. So the more. Yeah, people. for sure. Well, and so that gets at that root thing, right. Of, of people having a good understanding of what the culture looks like and, and the connection from the past to the present and the, um, the, what's the word, uh, the persistence and the, the continued, you know, existence of cultures of, of different cultures and indigenous cultures and first nations. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that certainly gets to that, the heart of that as well. And I like that you're doing it in a fashion that is really accessible to people. Um, you know, it's not like in a classroom or something necessarily, right? Like you're just producing this stuff and then putting it onto the internet, which is for a lot of people accessible. You can just sort of get into it. And and then, yeah, so it's, um, it's nice in that sense. And, and I mean, it sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so hopefully it'll be a yeah. growing pain. Like it's, it's all, you know, hopefully yeah. it gets better as, as totally. long. So, um, so that, it's, that's my fun project. And I guess uh, the other one's fun too. Uh, so <laughs> the other one's a little bit more, I don't know how you say like thought and a lot more mind um, right. challenging. Um, so I'll be looking at getting, um, looking at how First Nations can access artifact collections. Um, so the idea was, you know, I had all these different different avenues of, of things I wanted to look at. I wanted to look at uh, how coppers kind of moved um, into Southern Ontario or how we can like trace it back or look at all these sites in the bigger picture. Uh, I wanted to look at like um, uh, post-contact indigenous sites and, and looking at like uh, uh, symbolism on, on uh, birch bark scrolls or, or the designs in pottery or the petroglyphs and kind of compare all that symbolism and seeing if we can use it to determine like a post-contact indigenous site. So for Ojibwe design, they use a lot of heavy floral designs and they have a certain aspect. So like something like transfer where were they, were they using a, uh, a floral transfer where is so if we can find a post-contact indigenous like stuff stuff like that and I you know I, I had all these different ideas that I want to look at and a lot of them boil down to is I don't you know where to start on getting finding these collections or how do I get access to these collections so that kind of brought the idea of like okay well maybe I'll just start calling random 
CRM companies. I know a few that would probably give me access because I've, you know, built that relationship. And then I was like, it's not fair in that aspect that we should just know how to, how to, how to get access. So that's what I want to do. I want to kind of split it up into two different, two different aspects. One is that understanding and knowledge of what happens to all these artifacts after they're excavated. Um, and then what we can do right now and, and where we're going to go in the future. Um, so that understanding part is, is a part of, uh, all this, um, what was your, your, your ball, ball your buster. turn ball buster yeah. in the field. Of, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we, we do all that in the field and, you know, some of the, some of the days are hard or, or whatnot. And, you know, there's arguments or back and forth or sometimes it's great. Um, but doing all that work in the field and then as soon as it enters out of the, out of the hands, it's in the lab, it's just like, it, it's yeah. done, you know, and, and some people kind of perceive that as we, we don't really care about it in, in a yeah. deeper aspect. Um, but it's just because we don't know how to get there yet. Uh, so I want to, you know, I'm going to be talking to CRM companies, museums, uh, um, uh, like sustainable archaeology, look at how they're supposed to be stored or how they are stored at their the different facilities, um, get that basic understanding and, uh, and, and go from there. Uh, and then how are they determining what type of artifacts are, are more important? Um, stuff like uh, grave goods or, or like copper items or, or jewelry and stuff like that. Or, or, you know, what do they, do they show those more or different level of, of care or are they all just kind of left to the same devices? Um, and then a part of that is going into, okay, so do first nations have access to your collections and then walking through that, how, how do we play that out? You know, who can who can have access? Is it only a a, um, a designated person? Can somebody that's not even in the field of archaeology get access to it um, only for research for cultural practices? You know what are what are the limits? And and I think the problem that's going to be is the First Nations don't have control over those limits. You know, it's going to be who has owned the artifacts, and and you know, I mean, like that's. The other problem of the whole thing is that the uh, the project archaeologist is being the one owning the artifacts for the people of Ontario. Yeah. Um, and then that statement alone, yeah. I, I, this thing just like spirals out into like so many different things. Like I don't, it's going to be hard to focus on one area and, and get that complete. Like that's going to be my, right. my problem um, with this one, and that's why it's so back and forth because this other aspect of, okay, now I want to ask all these same questions to community members and, and people, uh, knowledge holders or people in the community or, um, get their, get their thoughts. You know, what do we want to do with artifacts and going forward? Um, you know, a lot of talks about, uh, having our own facilities and, and getting into resource management and, and stuff like that. And, and, curation um but you know the, a lot of those projects are are years off uh for a lot of communities aren't going to have that type of 
um, financial independence to be able to do that. You know, we might be, I think we're in a good place that we can get there if that's a, an area we want to expand in. Um, and then that comes with the other project of getting more people knowing about archaeology. So people want to have that in the community. Yep. So you know, all these things kind of like tie together. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like no, it's, it's true. It's true. There is, there's this whole other side of things because like you said, it, there's, you know, there's a lot of involvement, a lot of focus on when we're getting it out of the ground, you know, being involved and having a say and what gets collected and how, et cetera. But then, yes, there's this like dramatic disconnect and drop off from the moment that you leave that site, then suddenly it doesn't matter anymore. Like it's just, it's, it's gone, right? There's no, that, and so really that that meaning doesn't go away. It's just that up until, you know, I think you might be the first person I've met who has talked about going to this next step of saying, okay, well, meaning still exists within this stuff. And so like, how are you caring for it? Um, what access do we have to it? Because you do uh, have rights to access those things, but there's not a lot of um, awareness of th that right. And so because there's not a lot of awareness, I think anyway, people haven't been exercising it. And so now you have to like blaze that trail of how do you get access to it? How do you set the parameters and the definitions of what, um, what, who, who's going to have access, what it means to communities and individuals and all of that. And it isn't really something that's been explored much again, from my, from my knowledge, it's not something that's come up very often. Um, well, and cause like I was saying, you know, when I was in Saskatchewan, I was working at the, I was volunteering at the museum there and, and they said, you know, communities could ask at any time to have things repatriated, but they just don't know that they can. And so things yeah. just sit there. Right. And they do. So, yeah. I mean, in that sense, because depending on the province, right, we should clarify too, that Ontario is unique in that um, provincially, there is no regulation over any of this stuff and where it goes or who takes care of it. In other areas like Alberta and Saskatchewan, it goes to a provincial repository and then it is theoretically cared for by them. Um, but yeah, but Ontario is particularly um, odd because there can be a whole gamut of how things are actually looked after. Things end up in people's garages and stuff, right? And just, <laughs> what's happening with this stuff? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, a good, uh, I was just thinking about this the other day is, um, you know, I guess just like open the curtain on what, showing people what happens like at, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you know, I, like I've read reports and, and like a lot of these collections, they just have a, a line item of uh, missing or lost or damaged artifacts, you know, and a lot of people don't even know that, like I've, I've you know, in, in the communities or even archaeologists mm -hmm. themselves don't even no, um, and some of these are like high, like, you know, double digit percent loss after yeah. collections. And, and, and if that happens in the field, you know, that's a huge yeah. problem. Uh, I was on this one site and, uh, okay. So like looking at it of as long as there's this weird thing of let's just collect it all. Um, and, and it, as soon as it makes it to the office, we're good. You know, it's, it's in safe hands, but it's like the same people that are going to be, fighting us in the field are the ones that are going to be controlling these artifacts and what yes. happens to them or, or if they want to mm -hmm. call them artifacts. Um, 
So, you know, they, they like, they process these artifacts and they start throwing things out that they don't think are, um, legitimate. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Um, and the, I've only seen it one time and it was the biggest mistake I think they've ever made because they brought their field, uh, supervisor or like right. the office person, or project the, manager the, the, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. To, to do that in the, in the field. Um, with everybody there uh, to start going through these artifacts and tossing out the ones that they thought weren't yeah. good enough to make the cut. Um, and, but like, and he was cutting it like by half. So, you know, all these numbers are dropping off and, and, and it looked bad. Nobody, nobody was happy with it, but this happens yeah. every time. Yeah. Like, this, like yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> um, so it, it was weird to see that kind of in the field and, and happening and that's you know kind of where it, it kicked start this this whole thing of okay what, what's going on after yeah and because again it, it, you know those those budgetary concerns don't disappear once things leave the field right so because from a, a business mindset if you have more artifacts that you have to catalog and clean them and identify them then that's more time and money that you have to spend doing that. So there is certainly an element of people wanting to jettison stuff just strictly to save money, right? Just to say, we don't, we, uh, we don't need flakes, flakes are useless or whatever, right? Like they're just making these determinations because in their mind, they're going, well, one last thing I have to like do something about or like store this for a longer period yeah. of time. But yeah, so this is a very interesting because, you know, like you said, the, it, it's it's cuts off, completely cuts off, right? You're super involved in the field. And so it almost feels like you're getting duped. <laughs> you know, like, like oh, yeah, you're super involved. You're so part of this. Yeah. <laughs> Slip it up behind your back. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So, Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's an, it's a very interesting angle and I'm, and I'm super curious to see how this plays out over time in terms of continued presence throughout the entire process, right? Because I know that in other industries like planning and stuff, um, they're starting to understand that the duty to consult has like, has to take place much earlier than what they've done in the past. And so this is a similar sense where like there's a spectrum here. And so we've kind of just sit in the middle, but maybe we need to like extend it out this way and include further along and then extend it out this way and include earlier on so that there is actually a full representation within the process. Right. Yeah. 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 But yeah. And then, and then that goes, say, like you said, the same thing, it goes into accessing those things in order to, you know, generate cultural meaning or to do more research or to, understand your ancestors or or whatever you know the, the the reason is for you um or for other people so and mapping out what that looks like um so yeah those like, they're they're sort of different but they're not <laughs> yeah and like you know that one this, this one's gonna be like it's, it's gonna be live i don't know if it, what you'd call it but it's gonna be ongoing and then built off of, so it's not going to be like a stagnant thing of like finish it, yeah. it's done, release it. Um, so it's going to be going back to community members, going back to these same CRM companies and then sharing that information, making sure, you know, testing that 
when I walk through this with them, um, how of accessing this collection, then testing it a five months later or two years later, seeing if that is yeah. still available. Uh, assuming, you know, there's no overhaul of archeological um, standards and guidelines where we somehow get complete control yeah. over artifacts as under the clothes. I'm very <laughs> unlikely. <laughs> yeah. Not anytime yeah. soon. But this uh, kind of, this is the kind of stuff that needs to happen though when owners do advance those standard and guidelines. That's the kind of stuff that we need to see happening so that people can continue to churn through their minds the meaning and the extent to which people are interested and have rights to these things. Um, because you know there is this this idea of like, you know, well, we've given you this and then you get kind of cut off from there um, when in reality it does need to be more wholesome and holistic. So yeah, that's, yeah. it's super, super interesting. I'm, I'm like <laughs> very intrigued by this, this project. Um, Cause yeah, there's so many elements. I know we've discussed it before about like, you know, how you go about uh talking to people and different, different companies and groups and stuff and the different responses that you might get. And then, in, and when they say, Oh yeah, that's fine. We could totally give you access to that. But then is that a one-off or is that like, can you make that a, a, an existing policy or something? And then, and then again, on the other side, having communities also aware that they can sort of access these things. Um, and then, and yeah, making it available to people perhaps regardless of their, their, standing within an archaeological um, sense, um, but also maintaining some sort of standards so that things are protected because that's also obviously an important part of it. Um, yeah. And, and that, uh, like, from the little talks that I've had um, on the, the, like, going forward part of, like, thinking about it and, and you know, I ha like, the real, I ha one of the be best or like one of the most exciting ideas that I, that I've kind of like talked about with and had some feedback on is like reusing these artifacts. So something like um, legacy collections or, or uh, massive piles of debitage that are usually deemed to not have any more right. significance or value. And then repurposing them to give them a significance or a value. Um, so, you know, looking at like the mound cultures, it, maybe we revisit that type of, of, of culture and, and deposit these back to the earth in a, in a way and, um, you know, something like practicing that or, or, or building that, that landscape out and, and you know, potentially using something like um, all the debitage to to fill it in and to acknowledge and give it that cultural meaning again and and practice of of mm -hmm. of ways. So, so that that'd be something. Yes, for sure. Good. And it, yeah, it's true. You know, you could you could very well repurpose things for that that type of learning, right? It's just the the yeah. passing along that kind of that culture and that education for sure yeah yeah and i think it goes back to the idea of is people don't think of like living cultures right mm -hmm. so 
you know, creating a new, new in the standards guidelines, they use a term called uh, um, a known spiritual place. You know, there's no reason why we can't make a new one. Uh, that, that bracket, you know, it's, that's the entire part of being a living culture is we're able to evolve and adapt and create new spaces and create new um, areas to, to totally. utilize. Yes. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that is a whole, another part of it too, is like when we, when we think about first nations and indigenous culture, a lot of the times, especially given the education that we get as like white folks, Europeans, colonizers, whatever, um, we view things as being static and something that existed in the past. And so expanding that mindset into, well, these cultures still exist um, they're, you know, continuing on and practices and, and the culture can change and it can evolve and adapt over time. Um, and so making that, uh, recognize, recognizing that within like the policies and the guidelines and things like that, where a lot of times it's, it subjects cultures to being only existing in the past, uh, or only sort of legitimate in the past. Um, and so lending some legitimacy to, that that current evolution and yes as you say like you you know creating a new new place of significance um you know i i agree i don't see there's there's any reason why that those sorts of things can't happen and should not and shouldn't happen they, they, they very well should um because that's how you breathe new life into it too right <laughs> like, yeah <laughs> yeah yeah um i don't know do you have anything else you want to add um, I think there's like a bunch of thoughts. As I, I know, talk, but, <laughs> they, I know. <laughs> they run away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't have any other questions. So, you know, if you want to freestyle on something, <laughs> by all means. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I don't have anything off the top yeah. of my head anyways. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, that that's super informative. And I think that that's great. I think what you're doing is fantastic. Um, and I'm super looking forward to like watching you go. <laughs> yeah, hopefully I, you know, answered yes. anything. <laughs> hopefully it was helpful or useful. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. No, it, it gives a lot of perspective for sure. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think this is also something where this contributes to that, like better understanding of things. Right. So yeah, I think, you know, you've done a great job, so I really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Anything, anything else? Uh, nope. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm sure I'll think of something as soon as <laughs> yes this is what happens I'm happy to have you back you know uh we can totally do it again and and have another conversation as as we go on so yeah yeah um yeah so if you do think of things just write them down and then and then we'll we'll do another one <laughs> sometime that one's good yes yes okay well I'll let you go then yeah my pee. what's that Oh, I'm a peace. Goodbye. Goodbye. Yeah, see you later. I'm a peace. Ba ma pee. Ba ma pee. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I got it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. I need Chi McWitch. (laughs) (laughs) Chi McWitch. We'll see you later. 
And that concludes my interview with Jordan Jameson. Um, <laughs> I'm definitely trying to learn some of the language, not nailing it every time. But uh, yeah, this is part of the learning process. So I also meant to ask Jordan, and I forgot, um, about his social media. So you can find him on Instagram. His username is Mr. Saga, which then a username from my own heart <laughs> um, but it is spelled mr period and then saga 93 i will put it in the show notes for you so you can find him there he posts so much beautiful stuff about his garden um because he he didn't go into this too much detail but he grows uh, lots of beautiful um uh, plants and veggies and things in his gardens and that is part of what he uses for the culinary stuff that he does anyway you can find him there and uh yeah so thank you so much to jordan for joining me and taking us through all of that and again sorry if it's like a little the interview is a little choppy here and there just trying to piece it together with some of the interruptions but yeah it was awesome thank you so much jordan chi miigwech um, so informative and helpful and useful. So if you have thoughts, if you have something that you want to add, if you have questions or anything like that, please feel free to reach out to me at, um, my email is archykate at gmail.com, A-R-C-H-Y-K-A-I-T at gmail.com. My Instagram username is for the time being K-L-A-K, that's K-A-Y-E-L-E-H-K-A-Y on Instagram. Um, you can also look me up on my webpage that is lookatthismesspod.wordpress.com. All of that information will be in the show notes too. Please feel free to reach out. You can reach out to Jordan too. He is super open and helpful and, and always open to answer questions. So you can tell him that I sent you <laughs> and take, take your questions to him too. I'm sure he would answer them for you. Um, yeah. Thank you again for being here. I really, really appreciate you sticking around. And um, as always, if you like the podcast, give it a rating, a review, all that jazz. So thank you, and I will see you in the next one.